Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I'm on the phone right now on Skype with Lewis Martins. Lewis was a guest on the podcast in episode number 82. He lives in Lisbon, Portugal. And Lewis contacted me and, and actually suggested that I contact... Um, somebody that produces YouTube videos. Lewis, who was that? Do you remember who that was? Uh, it was Andy Miller from the YouTube channel Boat Works Today. Yeah, and I reached out to him, sent him an email, and he was somewhat interested, but we really never followed up. But Lewis sent me an email and said, hey, Franz, since you weren't able to get him on the podcast, let me talk a little bit about fiberglass work. And that's what we're going to explore in this episode. And then at the end of the podcast, I'm going to bring you up to date on what's going on and also read some letters from listeners. So I will, do at the, I will do that at the end of the podcast and not at the beginning. So, Lewis, tell me where you are in your project. The last time we talked, your boat was on the hard, and you were doing a lot of, of cosmetic repairs and structural, I guess some structural work on the, hull, on the boat that you bought. So where are you right now? Um, I'm still on the hard, and I'm still doing uh, cosmetic repairs, <laughs> some, uh, a few, uh, and some structural repairs. Uh, I recently found out that uh, I need to replace the chain plates on my boat. Uh, also, the chain plates on the boat were mounted in a different way than the designer who with, with Angelo Lavrano's uh, design the boat. Uh, so I'm going to rebuild the chain plates and uh, build them according to the original plans. So it will, it will be a while before I launch the boat. All right. I want to make a comment on chain plates because I've had this experience on three different boats now. When they first started building fiberglass boats, uh, a lot of times they would bed the chain plates, basically sandwich the chain plates, stainless steel chain plates inside fiberglass. So there was no fiber, so there was no stainless steel exposed to the air. Three different boats I've been on have lost rigging because the chain plates broke. And now they've discovered that for chain plates to be effective, they have to be exposed to the air. So burying chain plates inside fiberglass is, is a bad idea. So just a heads up on that. My, my chain plates on my boat are on the outside of the boat, so you can see them actually on the outside of the hull because it's a traditional-looking boat. <laughs> and for that reason, when I'm backing into a slip, people get up and, uh, and protect their topsides from my boat when I'm backing in because <laughs> they will do a lot of damage to boats next to me if, uh, if, they're, if I don't have the fenders placed just right. So, so what kind of chain plates do you have, Lewis? Uh, I have the chain plates bedded 
underneath fiberglass. Ah, so that's why you've got to change yeah. it then. Okay. And I could see that they are badly rusted because there's there was water leaking through uh, the fittings on the deck and through the, the, the tiniest space between the fiberglass and the, the actual chain plate. Uh, so water uh, was in there and damaged the, the chain plates really badly to a point where the, the actual uh, steel is delaminating, if you can imagine that. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a big problem. Uh, also, uh, they were, Angelo Lavranos designed it differently. He designed it uh, in a more, um, what I would consider a more modern, conventional way these days, where you have some plywood webs, uh, fiberglassed both to the hull and to the deck, and then the chain plates would be bolted to these uh, plywood webs. So when the, the rigging pulls the chain plate, it will be transferring the forces to the hull uh, via the, the tabbing uh, that connects the plywood web uh, to the hull and not directly into the hull. Okay, okay. So are you going to have but to do I'm a going... lot? Are you going to have yep, to do a lot sorry. of? Are you going to need to do a lot of fiberglass grinding to get that out then? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a nasty, nasty job, uh, but I will have to do it. But I, I'm going to do something very different and very radical. Uh, I'm going to, to, to mount these uh, plywood webs where they should be, but instead of steel chain plates, I'm going to use uh, carbon fiber chain plates. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, going to cost you a pretty penny, I assume. Uh, not really, not really. Uh, I I put it on an Excel spreadsheet, and basically, the cost of uh, building the carbon fiber chain plates is not much higher than uh, building uh, steel stainless steel uh, chain plates because stainless steel is very expensive. Uh, if you go for, if you go for uh, three sixteen stainless steel. So, are you going to mold your own chain plates then? Yes, I'm going to mold my own chain plates uh, using carbon fiber uh, with a core of um, foam, and uh, I will then uh, bed these chain plates uh, with fiberglass and epoxy resin. Well, today we're going to talk. Uh, on the techniques of fiberglassing. So why don't you take us into the education you've learned and are willing to share with us on some of the techniques on fiberglassing, the resins, the material, what you've learned, and I'll let you sort of take it where you want to go. Okay, and you are welcome to ask any questions. Uh, before, before we go into actual techniques... Uh, and actual repairs or building uh, using fiberglass, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, some of the terminology and some of the materials you will be actually using so that when we talk about the repairs themselves, 
we can refer to the materials that we discussed uh, previously and everything is clear at that moment. Is that okay with you? Sounds good. Let me ask you a quick question, though. I, I'm just yeah. looking at my old post from episode 82, and you had a website there called uh, HTTP dovetailkid.com. Uh, not that one anymore. Okay, so you're going to have to give us do – you, do you have a new website or not? Yes, yes. It's uh, sailingscali.com. Uh, Scali is the name of my boat. It's the original name. It was never changed, although I'm the third owner. And it's spelled S-C-A-L-L-Y. Okay, so I'll, cha- I'll add that to this post and yeah. also change the I, post I in the old one. I don't post very often, uh, but uh, I do post very often on Instagram. And if you go to my website, you will find the link to Instagram, which is Sailing Scally as well. Okay, okay, great. All right, then we'll continue then. Sorry about that. Okay, so uh, we will. We will. Uh, I'm referring here to to a presentation, the PowerPoint presentation I made a while back, and I have uh, the the topics here. So briefly, we will be talking uh, very briefly about what is a composite material. Then we will be talking about the types of resin you can use in your composite work. Then we will talk about the types of fiberglass and other fibers you can use and the, the, the forms that they are uh, available to you. Then we will be talking about what tools and other equipment you can use in your uh, fiberglass work. And then uh, we will go into the actual repairs, the kinds of repairs that you will be uh, faced and how you will tackle each one of the which re- kind of the repairs because each kind of repair uh, usually means using a different technique or using a different kind of fiber or a different kind of resin okay so this will be a while <laughs> uh, so what is a composite material uh, basically it's when you merge uh, when you join two very different products, very different materials, uh, and when the result is one single material. However, both materials uh, are still there present uh, in the form they were original, uh, ma- originally made. So it's not like mixing two metals that will give you an alloy. Uh, when you get an alloy, the molecules in each metal will um, react with each other, uh, and you will never. If you if you mix tungsten and uh, iron together, you will have an alloy, but you, it will never be. You will never find in that alloy uh, molecules of tungsten and molecules of uh, iron. Okay, when you mix uh, fiberglass and resin. The fiberglass is there, the resin is there, but the material is bonded together and creates a different material with different properties. Okay, so this is the definition of a composite material. Uh, a very common composite material that everyone uh, is used to is concrete to build uh, buildings, right? So you, you mix cement and you mix sand and you mix some uh, rocks and maybe some uh, steel, and it 
it cures and it will give you a composite material. With fiberglass, it's the same thing. Okay? So this is the basic idea of a composite. Okay? And when you say, I have a fiberglass boat or I have a plastic boat, I'm sure you, you've heard this many times. I have a plastic boat. I have a fiberglass boat. No one has a plastic boat or a fiberglass boat because a plastic boat wouldn't have the strength. A fiberglass boat would be a boat made of cloth and it would sink instantly. Okay? Are right. you following? Yep, absolutely. Yeah? So the, the right term would be I have a glass-reinforced plastic boat. So it's plastic and it's reinforced with fiberglass. However, that being said, usually the term fiberglass is commonly used to refer to the composite itself and not just the glass. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, so when uh, from here forward, we will be using fiberglass sometimes, uh, meaning it's the composite and not the fiberglass alone. All right. Okay? Yep. So you will probably, if you, if you look in... Um, technical uh, specifications of a boat, you will probably see something like GRP construction, which means a glass-reinforced polymer boat. Okay? Okay. So, that was that for the boring part. Let's go into what types of resin you usually uh, use on boats, on boat construction. And usually three resins come into um, play. It's usually either polyester, epoxy, or vinyl ester. Uh, or, or, probably... what, or what was the last one again? Vinyl ester. That's one I'm not familiar with at all. Yeah, and it's, uh, well, I have never used it. It's not available in my market here in Portugal. I can only buy either polyester or epoxy. And it's usually what most people will be using, either polyester or epoxy. However, some builders uh, will use vinyl ester in some specific applications. And I will go into that uh, in a while. Can you spell vinyl ester? Because I'm not familiar with it. Yes, V I N Y. L E S T E R. Okay. Okay. It's it's a a kind of polyester resin. Okay. A, a, a more a recent uh, formulation of polyester resin, and uh, it has properties that will be both mechanical and chemical properties that will be between polyester and epoxy. Okay. So polyester resin is very cheap. It's what uh, most boats are built with. Your boat probably is built with polyester resin and the hull, and then you use lots of polyester resin uh, throughout your build, correct? Right, so uh, then there is epoxy resin, which is usually five times more expensive than polyester resin. And that is why very few boats are built with epoxy. And boats built with epoxy are very expensive, usually. And 
sometimes epoxy is used for certain specific applications in uh, building a boat. Polyester resin is weaker than epoxy. Epoxy is much stronger and stronger meaning that it's stronger both in the bonding properties of the resin. So if you are bonding something uh, that is already cured, for example, the hull, and you are bonding a bulkhead to that hull, you should be using epoxy because it has a higher strength of bonding. It's also stronger in terms of uh, tensile strength, uh, so it will uh, resist uh, larger forces. So it's ideal to bond uh, the webs I was uh, talking before, the webs where the chain plate uh, attaches that are uh, then bonded to the hull. Okay, so it's, uh, it's a, a much stronger resin, okay? Also, polyester resin uh, is what uh, causes uh, the infamous... Um, blistering? Yeah, osmosis blistering. Right. Now, haven't they pretty much dealt with that problem so it's not a problem anymore? I, and actually, I, uh, as I recall, it wasn't necessarily the polyester resin. It was the gel coat reaction with the polyester resin. Um, there, there, there are several problems that will lead to gel coat blistering and to, to uh, osmosis. And do you want me to go into, into that? Oh, well, you know what? Maybe we ought to continue on the PowerPoint and we'll come back to that later on. And maybe no, people we can, are... we can, we can go into that. No okay, problem, no go problem. ahead. Let's, okay. let's talk about it. Cause that's so, a common problem. Everybody's worried about when buying a new so, boat or used boat. The, so. When you, when you used uh, polyester resin, you used it and it had a very, very strong smell, right? Mm -hmm. And the day after you used it, it was already cured, but the smell was still there, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes for several days. The reason is that when you, when you polyester resin when it uh, cures and uh, it's a chemical reaction, the curing process, uh, when it cures, some of the components in the resin are not wasted in the reaction. So you are left with um, a cured uh, polyester, but there are some tiny bits inside that uh, laminate that are never going to cure because the reaction finished and the components that made that reaction uh, were wasted and some of them were still there. Um, I'm, am I clear? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So those components will eventually evaporate. They flash off. And when they do, the smell goes away and they leave very, very tiny microscopic holes where these components that flashed off were, then you have a hole, microscopic hole. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's the nature of polyester resin. So water then gets through these microscopic holes, molecules of water, and go into the hole. And basically gel coat is polyester resin mixed with a white pigment to make it white and to make it thick. 
So the problem is, yes, it's the gel coat, but it's the polyester itself. It's the nature of the polyester. Whereas when you mix epoxy, you, make, you have to mix it at very precise uh, measurements. Like, for example, if you use West System Resin, it will say one part hardener, five parts resin. If you fail in that uh, formula, uh, some of the components uh, will be wasted before the, the reaction is complete and you will be left with a weak product. Okay, so the, to start, you have that problem with the polyester resin, the gel coat is polyester, water will be able to flow through the gel coat and into the fiberglass laminate. Then there is another problem that you were referring to, that when they build the boat, when they build the hull, they have a mold and they spread gel coat in that mold, and then they start laying up the fiberglass uh, on that gel coat. So they build it from the outside to the inside. The mold is the outer part, okay? Mm -hmm. And usually the first layer of glass that they put against the gel coat uh, gets lots of... Uh, tiny, tiny bubbles of air, which creates uh, voids in the laminate. Then imagine water is flowing through the microscopic holes of the gel coat, and it will be flowing into these tiny, tiny holes in the, lamina in the, the laminate, the first layers of fiberglass that are against that uh, gel coat. Okay, but what causes them to expand into blisters? Do you know? Okay, yes. So then water flows through the osmotic uh, process uh, from going from one side of the gel coat to the other side, and then they start dissolving uh, whatever particles are, are in the laminate they are, that are water soluble and this uh, product then starts to um, create an acidic uh, product the, the dissolved particles uh, mixed with the water and uh, through osmotic uh, process more water is pulled into these uh, tiny holes and they start to grow. And the, the, also the, the chemicals there will start uh, damaging more of the polyester resin, and it will start to form a bubble. It will start to uh, get pressure there due to the, the acidity and the, the damaging of the polyester resin and the polyester laminate. Okay. So it's a very complex problem and the only way to deal with it uh, is either to build an epoxy boat, uh, which is very expensive, uh, or to uh, paint basically uh, an epoxy uh, paint uh, on the underwater surfaces of, of your boat. And that epoxy primer usually will... Uh, 
isolate the gel coat from the water. All right, and that's what I did. When I built my boat, uh, of course, I had a lot of fiberglass work inside like you're talking, but that was a long time ago. But before I launched it, before it ever hit the water, I did put an epoxy barrier on the outside of the hull and then yeah. put, put bottom paint over the top of that. I've never had problems with uh, blistering. Yes. Yeah. That's the way to go. That's the way to go. But sometimes, and I've seen that, boats come from, uh, we have uh, several boat yards here, here in Lisbon. Boats came from uh, France, from Beneteau, from Geno, from Germany, from Bavaria. And they apply one coat of uh, epoxy primer, and then they apply the bottom paint. And one coat of epoxy primer is not enough to isolate the hole. You need more epoxy primer. Yeah, and what I did on mine is I, I did two layers of different colors of epoxy. Uh, you call it primer, I call it paint, but basically an epoxy barrier. And I did yeah. one color, and then after that I did another different color so I could see if I was ever sending for if i was ever sending the hull if i'd go through both both layers so that mm -hmm. that's what i did was two different colors to for that reason yeah yeah depending depending on the brand you buy they may require as much as six coats of prime uh, five coats of primer uh, for example if you use international gel shields 200 they will tell you apply five coats and you will be good to go that's pretty expensive to do five coats of that. Yes, that's why some people do less, and then they have osmosis. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's move right. on from the osmosis into, uh, you were talking about resins. Let's continue yeah, on resins. with your, your PowerPoint resins. presentation from there. So. Yeah, okay. Polyester resin uh, is uh, when you purchase polyester resin, uh, you will buy two components. One is the resin itself, the other is the catalyst. Usually it's a very tiny bottle of catalyst because you use 1-2% of catalyst uh, for the amount of resin that you will be using at that time. This is because polyester resin is pre-mixed already, the hardener and the resin in the same bottle, but it's mixed with a retardant that will uh, slow the curing process to as much as years. So the catalyst will just accelerate that uh, curing process very quickly. Uh, so one, two percent, and it will vary the speed at which the polyester resin will cure. If you mix like four percent it will cure like almost instantly, and you will we won't be you won't be able to work with that. So one two percent, one percent in a hot summer day, two percent in a cold day. If it's very cold, don't use resins because uh, they will have a hard time starting to cure. Okay, polyester resin, like I said before, as uh, is a weaker resin in terms of tensile strength and bonding strength. So it should not be used to make uh, repairs uh, when you are bonding something uh, to another uh, area of your boat that is already cured, obviously. 
but it is good to use in um, when you are building something new, like if you were building uh, a hatch uh, cover, if you would be using a cockpit locker lid, uh, I would build it using polyester resin because it's much cheaper and I am building a piece from scratch. If I'm building, if I'm repairing, I will be using epoxy resin, okay? Because of the ability to bond better to a, to a, an existing component of your boat. Right, now okay. if you take, now I, I, I saw this when I was building my boat, I'd have less leftover polyester resin, it would just cure in uh, in a container. And you could hit it with a hammer, and it would shatter into a million little pieces. And I don't think yeah. epoxy does that. Epoxy pretty much stays together if you hit it with a hammer after it's cured. Uh, yes and no. Uh, you will have to hit it harder because it is stronger. But it will. Uh, it is very brittle. The the resin alone is brittle, and it will break. It's like, uh, have you ever uh, banded uh, a CD or a DVD to a point where it breaks? Right. Mm -hmm. It's the same with epoxy resin. You start bending it and then suddenly it shatters. Maybe with polyester you start bending it with less force and it shatters. All right. But it's the same thing. Yes. It's when you add the fiberglass that you add the resistance, the capacity to 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 handle more strong forces, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's jump into epoxy resin. Epoxy resin is supposedly uh, completely watertight. Uh, nothing is completely watertight. Uh, water molecules are so small that they will go through anything with time, with enough time. But it's when compared to polyester, you can consider it that it's watertight. That's why you apply epoxy barrier coats to your uh, hole to uh, isolate the polyester laminate. It's, mo- it's stronger in terms of mechanical strength and bonding strength. And it's the resin to use uh, when you are uh, using carbon fiber or Kevlar. You're not going to use uh, an expensive fiber and you're not going to use a strong fiber and use a weaker resin, right? Right. So it's, uh, yeah. And furthermore, uh, polyester doesn't go very well with carbon fiber. Uh, the, the way they uh, wet the carbon fiber uh, is not the same they wet with uh, epoxy resin. So I think we we have talked a lot about resin, and we can move to uh, another topic. Uh, briefly, uh, to mention vinyl ester resin, uh, it's a better formulation of polyester resin. It will have uh, mechanical properties uh, that will be between polyester and epoxy and because of the way that it cures the chemical reaction there there are no uh, of those voids uh, the microscopic holes I mentioned uh, when the polyester cures with vinyl ester you don't get that 
and the price uh, is between polyester and epoxy. So sometimes you think, well, I'm going to spend $1 in polyester, $5 in epoxy, $3 in vinyl ester. Well, I may go with epoxy. Okay. All right. So vinyl ester right. is just sort of an improved polyester then. That's the next Yes, it's next an day. improved formulation of polyester resin. Right. And uh, actually you catalyze po uh, vinyl ester with the same catalyst that you use for polyester resin. It's the same catalyst. So uh, it's basically a similar chemical reaction to cure. Okay. All right. Oh, let me mention when using epoxy, if they tell you that you must mix one to three or one to five parts, you must do that. Don't, don't take uh, the road to use, like, I'm, I want this to cure faster, so I'm going to use more hardener. No, you can't do that. If you want it to cure fast, faster, you will have to use a different hardener, a hardener that will make the resin cure faster. The same, you will have a hardener that will make it cure slower. For example, again, referring to West System products that are uh, widely available and very well known, uh, they have uh, the standard hardener, they will have the fast hardener, the slow hardener, and the extra slow. Usually I go with the slow, and sometimes in the summer months, I wish I had the extra slow because it cures very fast with the, in the warm day. All right. Now let's back up a little bit because I'll just relate some of the experiences I've had uh, with the fiberglassing I did on my boat. Now when I bought my boat, I had a Holland deck, but I installed um, some of the bulkheads myself and mm -hmm. also a lot of the stringers. And so I had a lot of fiberglass work to do on my boat. Right. The hardeners that I used, well, I mean, the hardener, when I, my experience on my boat was, it was, <laughs> you couldn't set a formula and stick with it. And it became almost like a true art form to try to figure out the right amount of hardener to put with the polyester resin, depending on the temperature and the humidity of the day I was working with it. Some days I would put, not put enough hardener in and it never seemed to cure. Other days I would put too much hardener in and while I was working it would start to gel up and you couldn't saturate the, uh, the fiberglass. So, so it becomes almost an art form that takes a little <laughs> bit of trial and error and a, lot, and a few mistakes along the way to, to get it right. And there's been many times when I was trying to put in a bulkhead and I was putting on long strips of uh, saturated fiberglass and suddenly as I'm putting on a strip it would gel and would not bond and I would have to tear it all out and start all over again. So, so the, 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 the amount of hardener with polyester is, is in my experience, uh, almost something you an learn. Yeah, an art form and yeah. you learn by trial and error when you're doing it. And you you do yes you do but the, the 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 thing is it's not you're not mixing hardener you're mixing catalysts the hardener is already there in the resin right okay excuse me yeah, okay hardener do you remember uh, so what so I so yeah and you mentioned that when and that's you... good to know because one time I put in some um, I put in a bulkhead 
and it never seemed to go off. It was still sticky a week or so later, but I assume it's probably cured by now on the boat. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the good thing. It will eventually cure. Right. <laughs> Give it enough time, and when the hot day comes, it will cure. Right. Yes. Uh, the, the thing is... Uh, there are several factors that affect uh, the curing process. One, uh, it's the obvious one, is the amount of catalyst that you add to your polyester resin, and it will make it cure slower or faster. But also the temperature in that day. Also, uh, if it's exposed to sun or not, the UVs in the sun will greatly speed up uh, the curing process. All right. And when and I was also, yeah, and, yeah. And when I was building my boat, I had it in a shed, so I never had any sun on anything that I did. But also, I learned never to try to try. You know, and I live in Utah, and so it would be below zero most of the winter, and then I would never even try to do uh, fiberglass work when the temperature was so low that it never seemed to. Uh, to set off, to I would cure. have to. Yeah, to yeah, cure. yeah, yeah. One one trick, one trick and very handy trick, is to get a paint tray, uh, to actually two paint trays. Get two paint trays, uh, put uh, ice ice cubes on one paint tray, then put the other one on top, and put your resin in the paint tray in the top. Now, and uh, now that would. It, now, would you want to do that in the winter or in the summer? No, in the summer. Okay, okay. To keep the to keep the 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 resin cold, so that it doesn't uh, it doesn't kick. Oh, that's a good trick. I never I never tried that. But in the winter, I would have the problem. It was wasn't warm enough to really get it to kick. That was a problem. Yes. Some, sometimes you will have to get a heater uh, with a fan uh, or some uh, lights, very strong lights that. Uh, that will generate lots of heat to to get it to kick and to cure. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that. I've never had because we don't have very cold weather. Uh, I have never used it. Never seen that being used around here. But I've seen some photographs on the internet, some videos on YouTube, where people were putting uh, very strong lights. Uh, to warm up the, the, the laminate so that it would uh, cure uh, properly and uh, in, a, in a fashionable time. Okay. Oh, also, one, one uh, thing to take in consideration is the, the mixing cup that you are using. If you are using uh, a small cup where the resin is... Um, in a, a very tight space, it will start curing much faster than if you mix the resin in a paint tray, for instance, where the resin is spread out. Because when the resin is uh, close together, it generates more heat and the heat accelerates the curing process and it will start to gel much faster. All right, and don't use polystyrene cups either. Because yeah. <laughs> they will just melt on you and you'll have resin everywhere. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what fillers, what, what additives you usually add to your resin uh, 
to change the properties of that uh, resin. Okay, resin meaning both uh, the hardener and the, the resin itself, or the, the resin, the polyester resin and the catalyst. Sometimes you need to have a thicker product. So we, you will use uh, microfibers or silica or micro balloons in order to make it thick, in order to make it strong. Where are you going to use the thicker polyester resin or, 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 or epoxy resin? Okay, for example, to fill a hole in your deck, for instance. You remove the deck fitting and you are left with uh, three or four holes and you want to fill those holes. You're not going to fill those holes uh, with uh, pure resin. It will be very weak. It will be very brittle. Like you mentioned, you hit it with a hammer and it shatters like glass. But, for example, uh, to fill a hole, if you mix it with microfibers and silica, uh, it will be very strong and very thick. So you can hit it with a hammer after it's cured and the hammer will bounce back. It will be hard as a rock. All right. But for instance, if you mix it, and it's very easy to mix these two, microfibers and microballoons. Microfibers are for strength. Microballoons are to make it uh, thick, but soft, easy to sand. All right. What about talc? Talc is sometimes used as well, isn't it? Yes, I've seen that being used, but uh, I've never used it. Uh, I don't think it's the proper thing to mix. Uh, it's sometimes used as a substitute for silica uh, to make the resin thicker so that it won't run. For example, when you are uh, making something in a vertical surface, but uh, I would never use it. I would use silica or microfibers, the proper fillers. Uh, microfibers will add strength Silica as well. Silica usually is used only to add thickness. Okay. Talc, uh, I've, I've heard some old salts mentioning it, uh, but I think the, the right way would be using silica. Okay. Now, what about, so, now let me ask you yeah. this. What about, uh, I always, whenever I had vertical surfaces, uh, when I was putting into the bulkheads, that was one of the the problems I had was getting the uh, the the saturated resin or woven or cloth or woven woven to stay up and not not fall back down. Would you use thickeners in that situation? Because that was always a problem I would have when I would do a vertical surface where I needed to bond, let's say, the bulkhead to the hull. Um, gravity always <laughs> worked against me. Yeah, gravity is uh, tough. <laughs> I've had that experience uh, myself. Um, I wouldn't use, uh, to, to, to laminate fiberglass, I wouldn't use any fillers. Uh, I would just use the, the resin itself. However, uh, sometimes when you buy um, polyester resin, you will buy polyester resin and it will be very thin, like milk. Sometimes you buy polyester resin and it's very thick, like honey. 
so for that kind of work, you would need uh, the thicker resin. And usually epoxy is very thick. Uh, if you if you're trying to use a syringe to pull to to measure some re uh, epoxy resin, you will have to pull very hard on that syringe and wait for it to fill. It won't fill instantly. It's okay. So in that so situation, you're probably better off using epoxy then. Yes, yes, yes. Or you will have to be using very tiny amounts of polyester resin and uh, a very light cloth so that it won't fall off with the weight of the cloth and the resin. Because the thicker the cloth you are using or the roving, and to, to wet it out properly, you have to put lots of resin. It gets very um, heavy and it falls down. So thinner layers less resin and maybe wait a few minutes between each layer so that it will have time to gel and to stay there and the epoxy resin and the polyester resin will start getting uh, sticky uh, when they start curing so maybe you have to wait a few minutes between each layer so that it won't fall off any more questions well let's continue on then Okay, let's continue to fiberglass and other fibers. You basically, in boat building, use three different uh, fibers. Uh, there may be more, I don't know about. Uh, you use carbon fiber, you use Kevlar, and you use fiberglass. And uh, that, there's very little to know about these. Uh, the very little you need to know is that carbon fiber is black, Kevlar is yellow, and fiberglass is white. And let's carry on with it. All right. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> but, but it's a joke I like to tell. Not a funny one, but it's a joke I like to tell. All right. What so, would you use one versus the other for? Let's talk about okay. that. Okay, yeah, that's the, that's the key thing. Not the color. <laughs> not the color, not the smell. The strength and the mechanical properties of each fiber, and also the price, because price here pays uh, a huge uh, weight in the decision. Fiberglass is very cheap. Carbon fiber and Kevlar are very expensive, sometimes uh, seven times more expensive. So when you are going to build a carbon, carbon fiber hull, the, re the resin is more expensive because you will be using epoxy. The fiber will be more expensive. So in the end, it will be like 15 times more expensive. So that's why racing, racing boats built with carbon fiber, uh, for example, the Volvo Ocean Race boats cost millions because they are <laughs> very, very expensive to build. Okay. So... When do you use each? You usually use fiberglass for anything and everything. Then you will be using Kevlar and carbon fiber for certain applications. Applications where you will need a stronger laminate. And by stronger, meaning that, and I won't go into very technical details, but meaning that it will resist 
uh, it will have um, higher resistance to impact or it will have a higher resisting to uh, pulling forces, for example. For example, to uh, the tensile strength of carbon fiber is very high and uh, you will have to pull with a much higher force uh, to be able to break it or to elongate it. So, for example, carbon fiber chain plate, because the chain plate will have to handle a lot of strength, the strength from the rigging, sometimes several tons. Okay. Kevlar, however, yes? No, no, that's okay. I'm just going to say okay. Kevlar, however, is very resistant to impact. And sometimes you will be using Kevlar in the bow of a boat or in the forefoot of a boat so that if you uh, hit something, it will be more resistant to the impact. Carbon fiber, for instance, is very um, fragile when we talk about a very strong impact. It will shatter because... Carbon fiber will only elongate 1.5% before it breaks. Fiberglass will elongate 4% until it breaks, and Kevlar more. Kevlar, usually if you have a composite made of Kevlar, the, fi uh, the resin in that composite will break before the fibers break. So if you hit something, you will open a hole in your boat, but the fibers will be still there. The, the only damage is in the, um, the resin. The resin. Okay. Yes. Now, so I guess I would think then, uh, then Kevlar is more springy. Is that what you would think about? Yes, and much more difficult to cut. To cut uh, fiberglass, you get a regular scissor and you cut it. To get... To cut carbon fiber, uh, you can use a regular scissor, but uh, you may be you may want to use a stronger scissor. To cut Kevlar, <laughs> you need a serious scissor. Otherwise, it won't cut. It will it will just try to chew, and it won't cut. That's why Kevlar is used in um, uh, bulletproof jackets because the bullets will try to pierce it and it will uh, absorb the impact and it won't let the bullet go through. It's very difficult to cut it. Hmm. Okay, so how, okay. have you worked with Kevlar at all yet? Uh, no, I haven't. I okay. Haven't. Never. Okay. Never. Only glass and carbon fiber. All right. Uh, what I've heard is that uh, it's difficult to properly wet out Kevlar. Uh, and, and, the, and let's the talk. Let, let's talk about what wetting out means, because you know, if people are listening to this, they may not have any experience. So let's describe what wetting out uh, means. Yeah. Well, basically, it means soaking the fibers. Like you get uh, your shirt, you put it in water, and it gets so soaked. Right, wetting out fiberglass is basically the same thing, or any other fiber. But the thing is, you don't want to drown 
the fiber in resin. You just don't want to pour one liter of resin on top of uh, uh, some uh, fiber. It will be wet out, but will it will have too much resin for that amount of fiber. Okay. Usually you are aiming for a 50-50% of uh, resin and uh, fiber. Right. However, and, and when I in my experience too when you're when you're trying to wet out fiberglass, it wets out very nicely as long as the resin doesn't cure. And once the resin starts to cure, you cannot wet it out at that point in time. Yes, true, because when it starts uh, to gel and uh, it won't be able to wet out uh, properly because it it will it will not flow into uh, the the fibers. Okay, that's that's one problem. Yes, the the other problem is when you put too much resin, you will have a very brittle uh, composite, a very brittle laminate, because it has too much resin. Uh, I mentioned 50-50. Uh, however, uh, that's only going to happen in uh, vacuum-bagged uh, laminates. You will never be able to have a 50-50 composite uh, without using vacuum bagging because uh, it's very, very difficult. Uh, the process of vacuum bagging is usually wet it out with more resin than it, than it needs, and then take the excess out. Through a vacuum, then? Uh, because you put like um, something like similar to a blanket on top of it, mm -hmm. and then you put the vacuum, uh, put it inside the vacuum bag, apply vacuum, and the, the, the pressure makes uh, the, the fibers go very tight against each other, and uh, the excess of resin will be soaked uh, in that kind of blanket. Have you ever used any vacuum bag techniques for anything you've done? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. What did you use it for? Uh, so far, just to, to, to build some um, small parts, uh, like uh, sheets of uh, fiberglass, tubes of fiberglass, uh, and I will have to use it to build uh, the chain plates themselves. Uh, and I've been experimenting with vacuum bagging in order to get more proficient with the process so that uh, the, the chain plates will be good. I don't want to see my mast falling down. <laughs> <laughs> Out of curiosity, when you build your chain plates, are you going to build one to test just uh, to see what the breaking strength was, would be on, on one of the chain plates to test? Well, the, the thing is, um, the breaking strength of a chain plate by design should be 30% more than the breaking strength of the cable, the stainless steel cable that connects to it, the shrouds, the forestay, the backstay. So when you have like a seven, eight millimeter shroud that will break at five tons, 5,000 kilograms force, and 
the chain plate will have to handle like eight, nine. How am I going to test it? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> How am I going to 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 test nine or eight tons of force uh, on that? Yeah, it'll be difficult. You're not going to. So so let's let's get on to the most common material that you were talking about. Uh, that it's being fiberglass. fiberglass, right? Yes, fiberglass, and fiberglass comes in so many forms that if you go to the marine chandler, for instance, to buy fiberglass, which you shouldn't, but if you go there and you ask, oh, I want some fiberglass, they don't, they won't know what you want. They will give you anything, and it may not be the right kind of fiberglass for your job. For instance, you have products made of fiberglass that are uh, woven, like uh, cloth for your shirt, products made of fiberglass that are non-woven, and I will explain that in a while, and you have products made of fiberglass that are made of very short pieces of fiberglass, like two, three, four inches long, and they are bonded uh, with a, a powder that bonds them together, and they are pointing in every different direction. And they compress it, and it forms like a, a, a tissue, a non-woven tissue, of course. So that's called chopped strand mat. It's small pieces of... Uh, glass that are chopped and then uh, thrown into a surface. They put a binder in it, on it, and uh, it dries and it's like a, a cloth, but not, a, not woven, okay? And it doesn't have much strength because we are talking about pieces of fiberglass, two, three inches long, four inches long, pointing in every direction. So, uh, if you want to fiberglass something that is like three feet long, uh, you will not have a three feet long strand of fiberglass holding that thing together. So it it's not strong, and it's not used it's not used in applications where you need strength. But what is the uh, what is the reason for using uh, mat then? To get uh, thickness, basically. Uh, at a very cheap price because mat is uh, cheaper than roving, than cloth. Now the other the other advantage also that I see from uh, from mat is it gives you uh, strength, uh, some strength in all directions, where there's not a real bias to mat where there is for the claws. Uh, you know. You, that that's the other yeah. advantage to it now and also commercial uh builders sometimes use a chopper gun which yes. is even cheaper and less strong than than mat and you can talk about chopper gun use for a second or two yes they they use it to build thickness on on a laminate on, uh, on the hull of a boat, for instance. But this mat is used between layers of cloth. So they put one layer of cloth, 
one layer of mat, one layer of cloth, one layer of mat, and that's it. In, uh, in my boat, I have the original plans where the architect specified the, how the layup should be done, and it goes like uh, one layer of 18-ounce uh, roving, one layer of uh, two layers of 6-ounce uh, mat, then two layers of 6-ounce mat doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> one and a half ounces of mat, then 18 ounces of roving, then one and a half ounces of mat, and so on and so forth. And, and so roving is different from cloth in the fact that it's very thick uh, uh, strands going each direction, right? Yes, it's a, it's a very coarse uh, material. Like when you have an Egyptian cotton shirt, for instance, the cloth is very thin and uh, the strands are very thin and you can hardly see the strands that make that cloth, right? But if you, if you buy a no-brand uh, shirt, you will see the strands in that cloth. Okay, so cloth and roving. Uh, in the cloth, you have very fine strands and tightly woven together. In roving, you have wider strands with uh, more glass, and sometimes they are spaced a little bit too much for my taste. So there is too much resin in that uh, laminate to fill all the voids between the strands, the very thick strands of uh, fiberglass. Yes, that's the difference between cloth and roving. Usually, cloth is only found in uh, lower weights. Uh, fiberglass, uh, let me make a parenthesis here. Fiberglass, when you buy fiberglass, you specify the weight that you want that fiberglass. Uh, the weight uh, but uh, it's confusing. The weight of uh, woven products, hold on, the weight of woven and non-woven products is specified in ounces per square yard in the US, grams per square meter in European countries where they use the metric system. However, mat, and that's why I said six ounce mat doesn't exist. Mat is specified in ounces per square foot. Okay, all right. Okay, so that's very confusing because, uh, and in uh, Europe, using the metric system, we still use grams per square meter. So when I say a 300 gram uh, mat or a 300 gram uh, glass uh, roving or uh, cloth, it's basically the same weight we are talking about. It's basically the same thickness of material we are talking about, the same amount of resin. Whereas in, uh, in the US, where you use ounces per square yard or ounces per, per square foot, uh, it's very different. Uh, a six ounce cloth will be much lighter than a one and a half ounce mat. All right. Now, Lewis we've, gone, Lewis, we've gone on for about an hour now, so let's wind it up, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, more on fiberglassing techniques in the next episode. So, Okay. 
So go ahead and wind it up where you want to for today, and we'll come back and talk more and let us know what we're going to be talking about in our next okay. discussion. Okay. Then let me just finish. Uh, also, it's very confusing when buying fiberglass because you can get mat, roving, cloth, or you can get products that are uh, a combination of these. For example, you can get uh, something that is usually referred as 1708. Have you heard that? No, I'm not. No, 1708. 1708 is basically a product that is made of roving, uh, sewn to mat. So it's basically two layers in one product. So one layer of roving, one layer of mat. Right. I have seen that, and I've actually bought some, but I don't think I ever really used it because I found it was too hard to saturate. It is. <laughs> it is. My friend, <laughs> one of my friends, uh, I asked him to buy something, some for me. Uh, he was in the store, and he saw it, and he decided, well, I'm going to buy this for me as well because it's going to be much faster. I'm going to build the thickness I need in uh, no time. Uh, it was his first time fiberglassing. <laughs> the result wasn't uh, fun, <laughs> no. fun at all. <laughs> no, I experimented with it. I didn't know that was what it was called, but uh, I never used it because the little bit of experimentation I did, I said, you know, this is more work than I thought it was going to be, so I never used it. So Yeah, basically to use uh, 1708, something that is very uh, thick, what, what you do is uh, you pour the resin on the fiberglass, literally. You like mix it in your cup and then pour that cup on the, on the fiberglass and then spread it with a roller or with a paint trowel or anything, and uh, it will uh, spread the resin. But you will have too much resin. So the next layer, you use a thinner product, and you don't use any resin. You just press it on that one, and it will absorb the excess resin. Okay? I will talk more about that in the, the next episode. Okay? Just to finish off, you have, when I mentioned, woven and non-woven products, and then mat. Mat is also a non-woven product, but you have products that are non-woven made of continuous strands, okay? Like you bundle several strands together, and you put them side by side. And this creates a unidirectional product of fiberglass so that it will have a lot of strength in one direction, no strength at all in, uh, 90, in the, the opposite 90 degrees direction. Okay, makes sense? And then you have biaxial products, where you put one layer going in one direction of strands uh, side by side, and the next layer goes in a, a 90 degree direction or 45 45 so it can be either 0 90 or 45 45 uh, what and you you may ask what's the difference between this biaxial and roving because you will have strands going in two directions what's the difference the difference is 
that because there, there, it's non-woven, there is no going up and down, up and down the other strand that is in the uh, perpendicular direction, uh, this product is much stronger because the fibers lay very flat instead of laying waving in the laminate. Okay, all right. Okay, so it's more expensive and also it's more expensive to build because you bundle the strands of glass uh, together side by side and you have to sew them uh, with a, a single strand a single strand of uh, nylon or something else to keep the product from falling apart. Otherwise, it will fall apart. And sometimes when you are wetting it out, it starts to fall apart because those uh, single strands that were holding the thing together start to disintegrate. But it's very, very strong after it cures. Now, what's this material called? Uh, it's either unidirectional. Okay. When it when it has fibers going in only one direction, or it's called biaxial when it has fibers going in two directions, like zero and 90 degrees, or 45, minus 45 plus 45. So this is quite and, a bit different from just cloth or, or roving then. This is a different material altogether then. Yes, the, 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 proper, the mechanical properties of the cured laminate the cured composite will be significantly different because the strands are laying flat and not going over and under, over and under, right. uh, okay. like in a like in a cloth in a woven product. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, it's more expensive. It's more expensive because it's uh, well more expensive to 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 make and a little more difficult okay. to lay up as well. It sounds like. Um. Not so. Depends on the thickness. You can get unidirectional carbon fiber in 200 grams per square meter, which is like uh, six ounces. Uh, it's very thin. Uh, you wet it out very, very easily. For example, the chain plates I'm building will have one layer of biaxial, followed by uh, seven, eight, nine, ten layers of unidirectional, followed by the last layer of biaxial. The biaxial layers are there just to hold everything together uh, and to, to, to get some strength in other directions. But basically, the unidirectional strands, the unidirectional cloth that you will be using is uh, just to provide strength in one direction because the chain plate only works in one direction and is pulling in the direction that the shroud goes. All right, I'm going to pick your brain a little more about this in our next episode, and I hope you. Uh, All right. I hope you take some videos of this and put it on YouTube when you're making your chain plates because I'll be interested in looking at that. I will take photos. I'm not a video guy. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fine. <laughs> but I will take photos for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Anything else you wanted to cover before we call it an interview for today? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Now, um, what are we going to talk about the next time you come on then? Next time. Well, next time we'll talk briefly about the tools that you will need. They are very, very simple tools, and that's why... 
most people think, well, fiberglass work is very easy because you use a brush and that's it. And a mixing cup and uh, some measuring, that's it. So, and the scissor to cut the, the glass. So, uh, it's why people think it's very easy that makes many people do fiberglass work and many people do fiberglass work uh, with very poor results because they don't work, they don't use the right resin or the right glass to that type of work. Like we mentioned several types of glass, 1708, roving, cloth, matte. What should you be using? And what about the weight? Well, you mix several types of glass, several presentations of the fiberglass and several weights which one should be used for each um, job. So that's, that's what we'll be using ne talking next time. We'll talk about more cosmetic repairs, more structural, structural repairs, uh, repairs where you have a solid laminate, repairs where you have uh, a sandwich laminate. For example, you have... Uh, a layer of fiberglass, then a layer of foam, then another layer of fiberglass, which is very common on the decks of some boats. And it causes many, many problems to boat owners. Okay. Thank you, Lewis. I look forward to our next conversation. You're welcome. All right. That's the interview for today with Lewis. I'm going to read some letters that I got from listeners and try to respond to some questions and give you an update. <laughs> well, I just wanted to let you know about the elk season since I've talked about it. So far, I saw one elk on the opening day and have not seen an elk since. The thing about elk is they're herding animals. So if you see one, you're most likely to see a lot of them. And I think what happened in Utah this year is the weather warmed up it was 70 degrees up at the summer home uh, yesterday. And when it's that warm, the elk go into higher altitudes. And they climb up the mountain to where it's cooler because they've got lots of fur and they don't want to be overly heated. So they tend to go up in higher altitudes where it's cooler. So I may get skunked. I've got one more day of hunting it's the buck season and the elk season right now for me. I can shoot a cow elk or a deer buck. I prefer elk meat, so I'm holding out for the elk. I have had an opportunity to shoot some a buck, but I haven't taken that opportunity because I prefer elk. Anyway, I'm not having much luck on this elk season. It's really funny because the day before the season opened, I counted 20 elk up on or near our property, which were all within rifle range. And since the opening of the elk season, I haven't seen a single one. I, well, I've seen a single elk, uh, which was shot by my neighbor. Anyway, so I got another email from Tim, Tim Wolf. He said, Franz, I kind of feel like a celebrity after listening to your podcast this week. As you know, we are newbies at this whole liveaboard sailing thing. Any suggestions on where to get the best deal on a catamaran? Which catamaran to buy for our intentions are, which would be live aboard with a heavy concentration on scuba and water sports? 
how to go about saving the most tax dollars in the purchase process. I know that catamarans are not your thing. Just thought you may have some input. Thanks for all. Sincerely, Tim. Well, Tim, here's, here's my problem with catamarans where I'm sailing. And you may find this to be the case where you're going to go sailing as well. When you go into boat yards or marinas, nowadays, at least in Europe, you are charged by the square meter of the area you take. So a catamaran may be 20 feet wide and 40 feet long. So you're going to have a lot of square meters you're going to be paying for in slip fees. Huge amounts, just huge amounts of, of uh, fees. If you can be at the anchor all the time, that's great, but you are going to be going into marinas from time to time. I've been on catamarans, on cruising catamarans, and I love the space. They're, you know, it feels very luxurious compared to a monohull. I have nothing against them. I, I always have the basic problem that a lot of people have with catamarans is if you ever get uh, tipped over, a catamaran, you're not going to come back up like a monohull will, will but the, being tipped over is fairly rare in catamarans, but if it ever does happen, you better have a hatch underneath it so you can get back and forth. Uh, and I've seen these built into catamarans where they have hatches underneath the pontoons that you can get in and out of the pontoon from. I've actually swam under catamarans between the pontoons and seen these hatches, which are basically in the uh, sleeping compartments so people can look out between the boats. I don't have anything against catamarans. I kind of envy them when I see them because they have so much space compared to a monohull. But for me, catamarans would be cost prohibitive because of the fees for storing them and the marina fees. Now, I've never sailed on one, so I don't have any personal, well, I, I shouldn't say, I, I've never sailed extensively on one. I've been on Hobie Cats and that sort of thing, but I've never really sailed on a cruising catamaran. I've been on I've been invited on board families that are on catamarans and had drinks on board these, and it's just so nice and spacious. I do like them for that reason, and I can see the advantages of them. Uh, I also see the disadvantages. Now, where to go to get the best deal? Uh, I think the best deal is going to be had when the charter fleets are turning over their fleets of boats. And you can also buy them outside of the United States, and then you're going to avoid the taxation issues on them. I'm not a tax attorney. I don't give tax advice. This is just what I've heard. Also, I've noticed uh, in California quite often when people buy boats in California, they sail down to Mexico and exchange titles or go out to sea a certain distance and exchange titles so it happens outside of the state of California. I assume that's done in other states as well. Uh, but if it were me, I'd probably be looking uh, somewhere in the Caribbean or somewhere in the Mediterranean where the charter fleets are turning over their boats. I had an interview quite a while ago with somebody, uh, a broker that represented some of the charter companies. And I think that's the company that Jack Andres bought his boat through and it was I think a form I don't know if it was a former charter boat or not but the person we had on the interview was a um, 
was a broker that handled a lot of the fleets for the charter companies when they were selling the boats. Now, you have to understand when a boat goes into charter, it's usually owned by an individual. It's not owned by the charter company. Sometimes they are, but most often they're owned by individuals uh, that go ahead and charter out their boat. And the charter company basically just acts as a manager and collects most of the money for themselves and lets you get on the boat once in a while. So that's all I can say about catamarans. So I don't know if that helps you much or not. But you did also mention that uh, you have tons of other questions. I hope you don't mind. So I don't mind you asking questions. If other people have input, if you feel like writing me a note using the contact form at the website or my email address, franz, F-R-A-N-Z-1, at medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com, I can forward this to Tim, and you guys can correspond together if you like. All right, let's go on to the next question. This came in today. It's from Jay Wall, or I should say Joshua. said, hey, Franz, love the podcast and all the sailing series lessons. Great information. I've been getting back into boating and listening to you and Andy Shell's podcast as well as all the others. I've been in the market for a boat and was wondering what your thoughts were on the ETAP 30 I've looked at many boats and have a budget of about 15k and found several boats just ready to get one and start sailing. I've also been looking at the Pearson 35. Was really curious about the ETAP. Found it on the coast of North Carolina for about 8k, $8,000. Thanks for the helpful advice. Joshua, can't help you here. I am not in the market for a boat, and so as a result, I really don't have much of, a, of an opinion on almost all boats out there on the market right now. And you're going to find this to be the case. Once you've bought your boat, you know, looking around at the designs becomes a, a hobby, and it's not a hobby that I really engage in. I have too many other things to spend my time on. But I have no, um, no information on ETAPs or the Pearsons because I'm not really in the market for boats myself. So sorry, I really can't help you, Joshua. Probably I would go online and, and just do some research online and find out what people are saying about the boats in the various forums. I got a letter from my son-in-law, Brandon. He said, uh, Franz, I wanted to introduce you to Lauren and Jan Larson. They spent some extended time cruising in the med with their family and he gave me their contact information and he said I might want to interview them and talk about how they educated their children while they were sailing in the Mediterranean he says he and my daughter plan on doing this at some point in time in the next five to ten years and I, <laughs> and I bet they plan on using my boat to do this we'll see uh, anyway I will be contacting them as soon as I get a chance and and then I got a letter from Jake in Australia. Jake said, I hope I spelt that right. He spelled my name Franz. That's correct, F-R-A-N-Z. I'm new to sailing and on a steep learning curve. We live in Perth, Australia, so almost the other end of the world. My wife and I are planning to bareboat charter a yacht in Croatia for 10 weeks in July 2017, your podcast has been invaluable. I find myself listening on my train ride to work with my Navionics maps 
open tracking the paths you talk of. Also taking your advice and ordered books you have recommended like 777 Harbors. I would love to get in contact with you and have a chat about some do's, don'ts of the area. Any recommendation of companies, individuals to bear boat with, and best places to go if you had 8 to 10 weeks in the same area. Or should we split the trip up and spend some time in Croatia, then fly down to the Ionian Islands and rent another? Happy to do an information swap if you're keen. He gives me his phone number. And then I responded to Jake. I said, Jake, you know, my buddy Jack Andrews has been sailing this entire summer in Croatia, so he's probably got more up-to-date information. So I put him in touch with Jack. Jack emailed him back, gave him his phone number. So I hope you two are talking together. Jack just put his boat up in a marina in the south coast of Sicily, so he's wintering in Sicily. And I'm looking forward to talking to Jack about his summer adventures soon. So, but, but bottom line, Jake, 10 weeks is not too much in Croatia. I probably would not break it up between the Ionians and Croatia. I'd just go ahead and plan on a full 10 weeks in Croatia, and I'd probably want to start at the very northern end of Croatia, or maybe the next country north. I forget what that is. Is it Slovenia? Not sure. But, uh, and then just glide down the coast. You're going to have tailing winds all the way and drop the boat off in Dubrovnik or maybe hop down to Montenegro, which is one of my favorite countries, and spend some time down there and then and then come back up and drop your boat off in Dubrovnik. Now, the one charter company I know that you might be able to do this with, and one-way charters are going to be more expensive, uh, would be uh, Sunsail, which has a, a base in Dubrovnik, but I'm sure there's others as well. So that's all I can do to help you there. All right, that's going to finish up this podcast. If you want to get eight free lessons, audio lessons on learning to sail, sign up for my email list. Uh, That's for the ASA 101. That's a 16-lesson course, but I'm giving half of it to you if you sign up for my email list. And hopefully, if you really like it, you'll just go ahead and pay for it. And uh, if if you like that and you want to continue your studies to get your ASA 104. I can't teach you to sail, but I can teach you how to think like a sailor and the rules and regulations, maneuvers, terminology, that sort of thing. I teach in my audio lessons, and I have one audio lesson for the ASA 101, audio lesson for the ASA 103, and then for the bareboat certification, the ASA 104, which is what you're going to need if you want to go out and charter a boat. Either that or some other certification which the charter company recognizes that lets them know that you're capable of handling a boat. All right. If you really like this podcast, go into the iTunes directory and write a review. I really appreciate it. If you have comments, thoughts, suggestions, drop me a note, Franz1, F-R-A-N-Z-1, at medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And, of course, the website is medsailor.com. Until next week. Thanks. Joe, do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. 
That's unbelievable. You're as good as in. I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you, every once in a while, you just got to say, what the heck, and take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>